Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. U.S. Supreme Court struck down New York's restrictions on carrying a concealed weapon in public spaces this week. Governor Kathy Hochul saying it was a deeply disturbing day, vowed to hold a special session in July to create new laws that she says are needed to protect New Yorkers. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The case brought by the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association took issue with New York's laws on the books since the early 1900s that made it a crime to possess a firearm without a license and that required anyone who wanted to carry a concealed firearm outside the home to obtain an additional permit. They could only receive those permits if they could prove that proper cause existed for them to carry the weapon. The opinion, written by Justice Clarence Thomas, finds that that law violates the U.S. Constitution and prevents law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. Governor Kathy Hochul, speaking moments after the ruling, called it deeply disturbing. She says it puts the safety of millions of New Yorkers at risk. This decision isn't just reckless, it's reprehensible. It's not what New Yorkers want. And we should have the right of determination of what we want to do in terms of our gun laws in our state. If the federal government will not have sweeping laws to protect us, then our states and our governors have a moral responsibility to do what we can and have laws that protect our citizens. A recent poll found that three-quarters of New Yorkers wanted the Supreme Court to uphold the law, including the majority of gun owners. Hochul condemned what she says is now the insanity of gun culture that has now reached even the Supreme Court. She says the timing is especially painful when people in Buffalo are grieving over a mass shooting in May that killed 10 people at a supermarket in an African-American neighborhood. Hochul says her staff attorneys are working with leaders of the legislature to craft a remedy to the decision. She says she'll be calling the legislature back into session in the coming weeks to address the issue. We are not powerless in this situation. We're not going to cede our rights that easily, despite the best efforts of the politicized Supreme Court the United States of America. Hochul says the details are still being worked out, but she says options include placing many public spaces like schools and subways off limits for carrying a concealed weapon and making it the default position of all private businesses to ban the carrying of guns. Businesses would be permitted to allow the carrying of a concealed weapon on their property if they wish to. And Hochul says the state could create a new permitting system altogether. We're also going to change the permitting process. We're also going to create a higher threshold for those who want to receive a concealed carry permit. We're going to require training, you know, that they have specific firearm training. The court decision comes just a few weeks after Hochul and the legislature approved a number of gun safety laws, including banning anyone under 21 from buying a semi-automatic rifle and strengthening the state's red flag laws.
The state's conservative party praised the court's decision, saying in a statement that it's a step in the right direction for millions of Americans who've been arbitrarily denied their constitutional right to self-protection for decades, and that the ruling will give law-abiding New Yorkers the option of protecting themselves with a firearm in a state with significant crime issues. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. So the big news coming from the Supreme Court, which struck down New York's restrictions on carrying a concealed weapon in public spaces. Governor Kathy Hochul this week saying it's deeply disturbing. Vows to hold a special session in July to create new laws that she says are needed to protect New Yorkers. It's just the image, Alan, of, for example, the New York City subway, and you're there, a strap hanger, and you're wondering if the person next to you has a gun holster inside their suit coat. No, it's crazy. Hochul is certainly on the right side on this thing. We've got to control the spread and use of guns. And the fact that we have courts that are saying, "Uh uh-uh, our guns are precious, you can't touch our guns, that's awful. And the New York State Legislature has got to figure out what to do. Now, this legislature and this state, frankly, is one in which there is still some sanity when it comes to guns and to crime. And I expect that they're going to have to work it out. That's after all, while we have a legislature and what the legislative process is all about. Yeah. It's a 113-year-old law, Alan. You know, the Republicans often and the conservative nominees for the court often talk about, you know, established law and precedent. What gives? Well, what gives is there are times we head in the right direction. There are times we head in the wrong direction. The wrong direction is when we become permissivist about the use and spread of guns. I don't know exactly what it is. I've never owned a gun. I doubt you have. But there are an awful lot of Americans who swear by their guns and think that they're safer because they have them and because other people have them. I certainly don't agree with that. Let's go to the primaries. They're coming next week, next Tuesday, Alan. And you had a conversation with the lieutenant governor, currently Antonio Delgado, former congressman from the 19th district, whose district was gerrymandered. And he was asked by the governor to join her as her lieutenant governor after Brian Benjamin, her first pick, had to uh, step aside because he was indicted in a corruption scandal. The issue for New York is the lieutenant governor runs separately. And talk to Delgado about that, about the fact that he has to win not only the primary, but the general election to get his seat. And why? leave Congress to do that. Well, that's right. Of course, there are great reasons not to be in Congress. you got to get on a plane every week or you got to drive every week. And I remember when the late Maurice Hinchy, one of my favorites of all times, used to get in a car and drive to Washington from his upstate district. Look, it's onerous to be in Congress. And if you get a chance to be lieutenant governor, And to sit in an office in Albany, New York, or New York City, you know, you take it. Not only that, it puts you in line, David, to be governor. After all, the present governor was lieutenant governor. 
If you have a lieutenant governor, you know, hope springs eternal, I am sure. That's the political game. Yeah, and the political game for the governor right now, Kathy Hochul, looks pretty good. She seems to be outpacing her opponents in the primaries and heading toward that first elected woman in the governorship. Well, it does seem that way. She's doing a good job. People like her. She's not out there creating a bad image for herself. People think of her as a good manager, and that's what they want. What they don't want is too much flamboyance, and what they don't want, clearly right now, is Andrew Cuomo. What did the Republicans want? You look at Lee Zeldin. He voted for the big lie that the election was stolen as a representative in Congress. He seemed to be leading throughout this campaign. He's got others like Rob Astorino, Harry Wilson, the businessman. You've got Andrew Giuliani, the former New York City mayor's son in the race. And it seems to be tighter now than it was in the beginning. What's going on with the Republican Party in New York? Well, first of all, they are severely outnumbered. There are just so many more Democrats than Republicans, maybe not in some upstate areas. But overall, there are more Democrats, and that, of course, portends what you're going to see in elections. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get a Republican every once in a while. I live in Massachusetts. It's the bluest state of all, and yet we continually have elected Republicans to the governorship. Same thing is true in New York. Remember that we had three terms of George Pataki, and if people get disgusted with a party in power, they sometimes reach out and say, let's have a little something different. That could well happen again. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartoff. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Governor Kathy Hochul signed a voting rights package this week saying New York stands against efforts to undermine national elections. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus reports. Marking the observed Juneteenth holiday, Hochul and fellow top Democrats gathered at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn to champion the package. They said the legislation is a civil rights measure in an era when many states have tightened voting access and leaders question the validity of elections. Hochul says she became friends with the namesake of the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act while in Congress, just days after hearing the late civil rights leader inspire college students at a graduation ceremony. And literally two weeks later, I won an election I wasn't expected to win, and I took my seat and I went over after being sworn in, I went over to John Lewis. I said, you do not know the impact you had on this group of a lot of white kids in the audience. You made them believe. You made them, you opened their eyes to something perhaps they were not aware of. They needed to hear your voice, John Lewis. And thank you for doing what you did. And he became a great friend of mine. The new laws are intended to counter U.S. Supreme Court decisions of the past decade, rolling back parts of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. The bills expressly prohibit voter deception and suppression, disallow denying or abridging the right of protected classes to vote, provide language assistance, require increased oversight for jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination, 
establish a statewide database of voting and election data, and prevent electronic voting interference. Hochul framed the bill signing as part of a larger progressive project while awaiting expected Supreme Court rulings overturning New York's concealed carry firearms limit and the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision. As always, when the federal government fails to act, you can count on New York to punch back and fight even harder. We will not rest. We will not rest while these injustices continue. As I said, we did it with abortion. We did it with reproductive freedom. We did it with gun legislation. And now we're doing it again with voting rights. Former Governor David Patterson, New York's first black governor, attended the bill signing, as did Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. When the governor mentioned that she uh, won an election she shouldn't have won, I lost an election that I shouldn't have lost. I lost by 18 votes in the most hotly contested race in state history. In February of the following year, they told me I lost by 18 votes. But it wasn't just a loss. It was a loss that even the Times wrote an editorial about. They said in a Jim and Yonkers, the game was blocked the vote because people were questioning people in my community as they tried to cast their vote. The state's first black woman Senate leader was pointing to her 2004 loss in a race marred by claims of voter suppression and worse. The most progressive and expansive voting rights laws in the country. As we do this, I want you to know that New York State is an example of even some of these things that we've seen in the deepest, deepest South. Also speaking at the ceremonial signing at Medgar Evers College was 90-year-old Hazel Dukes, president of the NAACP New York State Conference and a direct link to the era of Evers, a celebrated civil rights activist who was assassinated in 1963. And so today with the first woman who is the leader of this state, I'm glad to receive my pin. When they put me in that casket and it's all done, I want that pin in with me. Because I want it to be known if I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living will not be in vain. The New York Civil Liberties Union says the voting rights package comes at a time of lacking federal leadership and urged lawmakers to fight to protect the right to vote. A federal package has stalled in the Senate. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ian Pickus. A roundtable discussion about the future of the semiconductor industry in New York brought together business and lawmakers recently. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. The potential of establishing an even stronger foothold in the billion-dollar semiconductor industry was the focus at the Albany Nanotech Complex. Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko, a Democrat, is a conference committee member for the Bipartisan Innovation Act and has been helping lead negotiations regarding continued funding of semiconductor manufacturing. Tonko has been calling for the National Semiconductor Technology Center and National Advanced Packaging Manufacturing Program to be located in New York. I think it's important for us to invest through the Department of Energy on the next generations of chips 
so that we not only invest in the current state of affairs for the industry in, in America, but to go further and develop the product line with research that will develop the, uh, the, uh, the components to get us there and develop the prototypes. David Anderson, president of R&D Hub New York Creates, says industry partners, including Global Foundries and IBM, have helped position New York to support whatever federal initiatives come its way. I think at the same time we recognize that the vision for the future is not a single state or a single organization, it's a national effort and it requires a nationwide response. And so because of that, um, you know, New York Crates is really excited to be part of the American Semiconductor Innovation Coalition, ASIC, which is a coalition of partners across industry, university, government, and labs to bring that vision of a national semiconductor technology center to, to, to bear. And we want to headquarter here in New York. Business Council of New York State President Heather Bruschetti says the growing semiconductor industry is a proven job growth stimulator. If you look at Saratoga County, 25% uh, growth in southern Saratoga County since 2000, um, largely due to global foundries. Um, and success begets success. The more um, critical mass there is in this sector, the more companies will start and grow around it. Um, and, and we've seen that uh, in New York to some degree, but we need more and we need to do it faster. Global Foundry says it has invested more than $15 billion at its Fab 8 site in Malta, now the company's headquarters. The firm's John Pellerin says demand for product has been high, noting the pandemic contributed to supply chain issues that intensified the worldwide chip shortage. We were already on a steep increase in semiconductor demand before, uh, before COVID. Just look at the semiconductor content in automobiles, going from a few hundred dollars to several thousands of dollars. Um, you know, the advent of... Uh, uh, Internet of Things devices, you know, you, you know all the devices you have in your homes. That's just exploding. So we were already on an upward trajectory. COVID threw a wrench into that. People cut their orders back, slashed inventories because they weren't moving their own product. And that just caused a huge whipsaw effect uh, across uh, the whole economy and certainly within, within our industry. So um, it has affected us. In terms of our ability to bring more capacity online, we are doing everything we can uh, to expand within the footprints we have. We are eagerly awaiting that uh, final signature to allow us to expand even more and to be able to bring more capacity um, online. Tonko says the House's America Competes Act of 2022 will alleviate the shortage. And I just think with more public awareness and more public push, we can get that done and uh, hopefully seal the deal because the CHIPS basics are pretty much in agreement, but we need to uh, come to terms on some of the surrounding issues that uh, still are being considered out there and at initial blush being uh, refused just because of its, uh, of its investment. Um, I can tell you in general there are some that are opposing the bill before it's even finalized because it's more spending. Well, I call this investment. And sometimes the cost of not investing is greater than that cost of investing. And, uh, you know, it's all about putting the legislation together in a way that's most meaningful. The Senate and House are reconciling a final Chips for America Act. 
For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Olympic Regional Development Authority, commonly known as ORDA, has a new board chair. Governor Kathy Hochul's selection of Joe Martins was approved June 5th. Martins has had a long career in the public and private sector. He was commissioner of the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation from 2011 to 2015. And in the private sector, he led the Open Space Institute and the New York Offshore Wind Alliance. Martins also previously served as chair of the order board from 2007 till 2011. Martins tells the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley why he's returning to order after 11 years. It's an exciting prospect. I don't think this community up here has ever let go of the of the hope that the Olympics could return here. Obviously, the Olympics uh, have expanded. They've got more complicated over time. And I think looking at it as a regional enterprise, perhaps even an international enterprise between Canada and the U.S. is an exciting prospect. And I don't think that you know, that hope is ever really diminished. And the interest in the assembly and the legislature bears out that a lot of folks would like to see the Olympics return here. You know, whether that can happen, you know, I think it's it's just worthy of taking a hard look at it. Obviously, it's it's much more complicated. And this is a small community and the impacts, you know, could be significant. So, It's an exciting aspiration and one that we, I think, will always take seriously. And if there is a a consensus that we ought to pursue it aggressively, then we'll do so. Whether it's regional, whether we have the facilities up to speed, can we afford it? It's a huge expense now. Do you think it's affordable? I think the facilities here are really second to none. So the fact that we've maintained these facilities over the years, not only maintained them, we've improved them significantly, puts us in a position where we can actually consider uh, bringing the Olympics back because our facilities are ahead of the game. We're not, we're not starting from scratch. We don't have to build them. They're already here. So, you know, we're sort of ahead of the game in that respect. But Obviously, the the dimensions that go along with a modern-day Olympics, the number of athletes, the spectators, this is a small community, as I've, as I've said. So the, the impacts of an Olympics are significant. And, you know, you have to look at the big picture when you're trying to figure out how it could be done. I think they have to be done differently than Olympics have, than modern-day Olympics have been done in other places. A regional approach makes a lot of sense. I don't think all of the... Uh, venues or the spectators need to be here in Lake Placid. They can be spread out. So I think we would have to look at it a little bit differently to accommodate an event of that magnitude and scale. But it's certainly possible, and we're starting ahead of the game because our facilities are in magnificent shape. Joe Martens, you've worked in both the private and the public sector. I mean, you've worked with environmental groups like the Open Space Institute and uh, the New York Offshore Wind Alliance. You were New York State DEC commissioner for a while. As you work now as ORTA board chair, are there things that you can incorporate from 
those other jobs as you work with Orta? I sure hope so. You know, it is Orta's responsibility to do everything it does in the most sustainable way possible, respectful of open space, respectful of the forest preserve that they operate in and around. And we have an obligation to do it, in, again, in the most sustainable way possible. Uh, energy conservation is a passion of mine. It's a high priority. So having the least impact environmentally as possible has got to be part of Order's mission. And I know it has been, but I think, you know, that's one of the areas where you can always improve. You can always take advantage of the most recent technology. And that's a challenge, but it's certainly one that I hope, uh, you know, my past experience will be to the benefit of Orta going forward. And as I recall, back when you were board chair before, Orta didn't oversee Bel Air, and I don't think it oversaw Gore. How much of a learning curve do you have with those areas as you step back into the position? Gore was actually part of order back then. Um, it was only Bel Air that is a new facility. And I was on the <laughs> the other end of that transaction because I was DEC commissioner when Bel Air was transferred to order. And in fact, I was one of the proponents of doing so because I just felt that Bel Air was a much better fit for an organization like order that had lots of experience in running ski centers. So I think that has borne out. I think Orta has done a great job at Bel Air. They've made investments there like they have at the other facilities. So I'm very well acquainted with the operation at Bel Air because it was under my purview when I was DEC commissioner. So I've got a lot to learn, but I, I feel like the facilities, I'm very familiar with them and their operation. I'm proud to report that last year I was a season's pass holder at Whiteface for the first time in my life because I finally had the time to ski enough to justify a pass. And I hope to do the same this season and get around to more of the facilities to enjoy them personally and to uh, learn as much as I can about their operations and, again, help guide them into the future. Joe Martens previously served as Orta board chair from 2007 until 2011. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. National Program Number 2225. Or just listen on the web at wamc.org. Or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.